0: I want to say something about worship. Something God has been saying to me about worship is that I have a tendency to be really distracted, easily distracted when I worship. And I wonder if you have that same same issue. That sometimes we're just singing the words, but we're really not entering into worship. And so I want you to think about this. God gives us worship to give us grace. Grace. He wants to give us grace as we worship. We'll have the opportunity to worship at the end of the morning again. But I want to encourage you to lay aside your distractions as I'm um, uh, pleading with God to develop the ability to lay aside mine. And when we come to worship, let's worship. Because in worship, God gives us grace. Amen? All right, today, as Brian said, we're going to begin this series. But really, this is a series on the human heart. It's a series on what the gospel does in the heart of the Christian. So, we're going to look at the fruits of the Spirit. Because the New Testament tells us the moment we come to Christ, that is, we receive Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and permanently indwells us. And the moment you or I come to Christ, we become spirit people, set apart, indwelt. By the Spirit of the living God, God himself. Now the passage that's foundational for this series is Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Where Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So there's nine of them. And we're going to take those mostly one at a time, and today we're going to start with this first fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We're going to talk about love. I want to look at what love is. I want to look at the greatest obstacle to love. And then the key to love. But with these first two points, I want to go to a story Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. And then with the third, this key to love, we'll come back to our passage in Galatians chapter 5. So grab your Bibles, turn on your Bibles. We'll have the words on the screen. Luke chapter 10, and we're going to pick it up in verse 25. Here, Jesus is having a discussion with a lawyer. On one occasion, an expert in the law, that would be the lawyer, stood up, now notice, to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, the lawyer answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength and with all your strength and all your mind. Now here the lawyer is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6 and then he adds "And love your neighbor as yourself quoting Leviticus, the book of Leviticus. Now notice Jesus' response. I want you to think about this response. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But here, now we read something curious, something that surprises us, something we don't expect. But he, the lawyer, wanted to justify himself. So we asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now back up a verse and look at the second to last verse, verse 28. I want you to see Jesus' words here. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. It's easy to miss this and to think at a surface level, Jesus is saying, great job. He's not. He's actually calling the lawyers bluff. And he's saying eternal life isn't about merely right thinking. It's about right living. So live it. Now, of course, our beliefs matter. But Jesus is saying, if you live it, then you believe it. So what's going on here is Jesus is just then calling the lawyer out. He knows the lawyer came to test him, not to be friends. So here Jesus is publicly calling this lawyer out. And the lawyer is embarrassed. How do we know? Because in the last verse we read, verse 29, he wants to justify himself. He wants to vindicate himself in front of Jesus in the crowd. So, what does he do? He does what all lawyers do he asks a question, a question of definition. Define for me what you mean by my neighbor. And so what has started with eternal life is now moving to neighbor because Jesus is guiding this discussion, not from the 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 theoretical to the practical. From eternal life to love. Now let's go on. Let's pick it up in verse 33. Here Jesus tells a story. I'm sorry, verse 30. Here Jesus tells a story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by him on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, have you ever been robbed? I've been robbed at gunpoint. I was in the country of Romania. Actually, the guy had a machine gun. So what did I do? I said, yes, sir. I gave him a little money. And I was just fine. But this guy is robbed by a group of men and is left half dead. He's barely alive. It was just brutal. It was awful. Now this lawyer that Jesus is discussing with was a Jew. The priests and the Levite were Jews. And all Jews hated Samaritans uh, because of their mixed racial identity. It was first century racism on the part of the people of God. And so Jesus, knowing this, is going to flip this upside down and take on their racism. And he's going to make this Samaritan, this half-breed according to the Jews, the hero of the story. And in doing so, Jesus isn't just merely embarrassing the lawyer. Jesus is attempting to change his paradigm, to shatter it. And along the way, he will most likely infuriate this lawyer. Jesus wants to change his hardened heart. So let's continue now to verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, this despised Samaritan came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii. Now that's two days' wages. And gave him them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law, the lawyer, replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. If you believe it, you'll live it. Don't tell me you believe it if you don't live it. Now, what is this thing called love? Most of us aren't sure. We're sort of like Augustine or Augustine. Centuries ago who said, I knew what time was the moment before you asked me what time was. That's how we are with love. We know, but we don't know. So what is this first of the nine fruits? What does love mean? As others have asked, does it mean that God is nice? that God is indulgent. But if God is nice, and that's what we mean by love, then what about when bad things happen to us? So, so no, we can't look at personal, our personal experience and say this proves God's love. Too many bad things are afoot. Too many difficult things happen. Nor can we look to nature and say, see that sunset? Oh, the sunrise this morning? That proves God is love. Now, why, why can't we do that? Why can't we make that move? Because of their, all the natural disasters. I mean, think of one of these tornadoes that had gone through your neighborhood this spring. So how can we know that God is love? Not through experience, not through creation, but through the death of Jesus Christ. How do I know God is love when personal tragedy or difficulty or natural disaster hits? Because God sent his son into the world to die for me, to die for you, to die on the cross. Therefore, God must love me and love you. And so when Jesus tells this parable he is saying something profound he is saying this is love notice the move from eternal life to love and what he's teaching us is that the sacrifice of the Samaritan for the man who was half dead anticipates and points to the greater sacrifice that Jesus himself will make on the cross in our place for our sins in other words the Samaritan points to Jesus the Samaritan is Jesus Now, there's more here, but everything points to Jesus. So what's going on is Jesus is defining love with a story. A story that ultimately points to the cross. Now, you you and I can understand this love. Love is Jesus Christ died for me. As I've mentioned before, my father was an alcoholic his entire adult life. He died when I was 13. And I never, never experienced a father's love. Never. And when I was a sophomore in college and I came to Christ and the Holy Spirit opened my eyes to see that God loved me so much, Jesus died on the cross to rescue me. I got to tell you that I spent about two weeks going back and forth between crying one moment, oh, my father loves me. I have a father that loves me. And they're just overflowing with joy the next moment knowing that my sins are forgiven i am eternally permanently loved because of what god has done in jesus christ now let me take this a step further would you give your son or daughter to die for another we honor soldiers who die for their country but jesus christ didn't die for his country his friends he died for his enemies. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners or enemies, Christ died for us. So my point is to understand this first fruit of love, we go to the cross. We start with the cross. Because when you stand before the cross and it's vivid, dramatic picture of God's love, you can even wonder, does God love me more than Jesus? Because Jesus died for me. Now, I'm not saying that's true, but I'm saying when you look at the cross and you think about it, you can wonder that. Love is the sacrifice of the Samaritan. It's the death of Jesus Christ. Now let's go on. I want to make my second point also in this parable. And here I want to move from what love is to this incredible obstacle to love that is endemic with all of us. And let me set it up this way. One of the ways we teach um, young children is by we teach them the opposites, right? Or opposites. You know, this is good. This is bad. This is cold. This is hot. This is safe. This is unsafe. This is right. This is wrong. This is polite. This is impolite. We teach opposites. But the opposite of love is not hate. Because when someone you love does something wrong, significantly wrong, you hate what he or she has done. So sometimes, often, love and hate function as two sides of the same coin. So what's the opposite of love? The opposite of love is self-love. The greatest obstacle in your life to you being loving is your self-love. Your love for yourself, your preferences, your needs, your agenda. And the only way you can explain a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite walking by ignoring a man half dead in the road is they were consumed with self-love. It was like they had headphones on. And man, they're, they're just chilling and they're, and they're walking. And the music that is playing is all about them. Me, myself, and I, that's the steady drip in our hearts that kills us and keeps us from love, keeps us from stepping in, keeps us from rescuing, keeps us from redeeming. And what Jesus is teaching in this parable is if we are ever going to learn to love, if we are ever going to experience this fruit of the Spirit, we must die to ourselves. just as a Samaritan did. And he did it in spite of his busyness, in spite of personal pressure, or maybe uh, it was work pressure. Because after he intervened and he spent the night with this guy, banding him, healing him, watching him, what did he say to the innkeeper? Hey, man, I got to go. But I'll be back, but I got to go. This guy was under pressure. He redeemed, but he couldn't linger. Uh, So what is this obstacle? This obstacle is our refusal to give way to the needs of others, to die to ourself because we're consumed with our own agenda. And this, by the way, is what I love about adoption and foster parenting. And those of you that are involved in rescuing children and loving children and people with special needs. Because you don't do that unless you die to yourself. And the deeper you go, the more it turns your world upside down. You die to your preferences. You die to your uh, needs. Dying to yourself means you do not say it. You do not click on it. You understand that the person here in the road is every bit as broken and needy as you. That you are every bit that way. Now let me illustrate this. Let's take a a conflict marriage conflict, or conflict among friends, a conflict in, in the marketplace at work. And you're angry, you're upset. And what I want you to understand is that's the fin. I've talked about this, we've talked about this before. That's the fin, that's what you see on the surface. But there's a shark under the fin. And underneath that fin is this shark that you feel ignored, devalued, not appreciated, not respected. And you personalize it because your life is all about your needs, yourself. And so in a marriage, we hear this all the time, as a marriage starts to head significantly south. Well, he or she didn't meet my needs. What is that statement? It's a statement of a refusal to die to self. It's anesthetical to what the Bible teaches. So at 8 p.m., as these feelings of frustration start to rise up in you and you're really frustrated with your spouse, instead of dying to yourself, because you know that Jesus is your Savior, not your spouse, and that God is orchestrating disappointment in your life to grow you, to humble you, to make you like him. Instead of understanding that and dying to yourself, what do you do? You lash out. The feelings just flow out. The greatest obstacle to love is you. And the steady drip of your self-love Turn a chapter forward to Luke chapter 9. I want to illustrate this. Look at verse 23. Famous statement by Jesus. Famous call. Luke 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. What is the very first characteristic of a disciple of Jesus Christ? It's not this nonsense, oh, that I gave my life to Jesus when I was seven years old. It's you live a life of self-denial. And here, now get the connection between chapter 9 and chapter 10. Here in chapter 9, Jesus lays down the principle that he illustrates with the Good Samaritan in the very next chapter. Uh, So I want to say something hard but I want to say it gently. Is that okay? Will you give me that permission? Is that okay? You do not have an anger problem. You do not have a worry problem, an impatience problem. You do not have a lust problem, a greed problem, and on and on. You have a dying to self-problem. And you have made life all about you. And unless you see this as the greatest obstacle to you living a life of love and service and giving and generosity, unless you see that this is a shark under the fin of your emotions. And unless you stop feeding the shark and you deny the shark and you expose the shark, then you're going to live just like the lawyer. And you're going to be able to answer some questions and you may have a definition of love, but you are not living it. Oh, I long for you to live this. Now, I want you to see this deep theological portrait of love from the movie Frozen. Look at this. Man, that's good, right? But you know the Bible takes it a step farther? Because the Bible says all people are worth dying for. Especially the most needy. So, who are you melting for? I'm not merely talking about family. It's important that, I mean, it starts with our marriages, if you're married, friendships, workplace. But who on the um, outer circles of your life are you melting for? Pouring into? All right, let's go on. So what is love? Love is Christ dying for sins. What is the great obstacle to love? It's our refusal to deny ourselves in the moments of anger and frustration and disappointment. Now let's go back to Galatians 5. So fast forward in the New Testament to Galatians 5. Galatians is after 2 Corinthians and if you get all the way to the end to the maps at the back of the Bible you've gone too far, okay? Okay. We're going to get to context because it's critical. Let's start in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit. And the Spirit, what is contrary to the flesh? They are in conflict. We try to avoid conflict. We tend to think the spiritual life means the absence of conflict. Paul here is saying the opposite. I'll explain it in a minute. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Man, you young men, you young women, I want you to underline this, hear this. You are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Then beginning in 19, we have the deeds, acts of the flesh. Let's pick it up in 22. But the fruit of the Spirit, and here they are again, love, joy, peace, patience, forbearance, According to the Apostle Paul, according to this context in Galatians chapter 5, the key to love isn't conjuring it up. You know what? Today I'm going to be more loving. Today I'm going to be a nicer to her or to him. The key to love isn't conjuring it up. The key is walking by the Spirit. This is how this section begins. Look at verse 16. Walk by the Spirit, it's a command. Then look at verse 25. Keep in step with the Spirit, it's a command. You and I, in other words, the apostle is saying, are not self-contained power sources like an automobile. We're much more like electric lights that must be plugged in to a constant, a continual current that's a source of power that's outside ourselves. The current, the power, according to the New Testament, is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that lights you up. It's the Holy Spirit that lights your life. So this is a section about what it looks like to be a spirit person, to be spirit people. It's why Paul calls these the fruits of the Spirit. They're not the fruits of Rob. They're not the fruits of Rhonda. They're the fruits of the Spirit. So the question is, how do we walk by the Spirit? How do you and I stay connected to this current, I'm going to say three things. First, and, and this surprises us, uh, you're going to hear this and you're going to say, really? The first thing, if you're going to walk by the Spirit, you've got to go to war. You have to engage in the battle. This is verses 16 and 17. We tend to think walking by the Spirit is a feeling, or walking by the Spirit is an experience. And it often is, but it's so much more than that. And here, just fresh out of the gates, as Paul begins his discussion on the Spirit, he tells us that walking by the Spirit is you stepping into war, you stepping into battle, you engaging in this conflict, he calls it. Now, what is the conflict? Well, the conflict is between the flesh and the spirit. Fleshier does not mean your physical body, flesh and blood. Rather, it's a metaphor for your and my sinful heart. And our sinful hearts at a war with the Holy Spirit inside us, who comes inside us the moment we believe in Christ and trust in Christ. But let me press it further. What exactly is this battle? What exactly is going on? Well, notice the repetition of the word desire. The battle is for your desires. You see, on the one hand, the flesh desires the things of creation. Bad things since the fall. And the good things of creation taken to an extreme. Actually, the word desire literally means over-desire. So we over-desire sex and money and Comfort and our family and our and uh, uh, certain situations, a new car, on and on. And along the way, they become idols. So the flesh desires the horizontal, the creation. The spirit, however, desires the vertical, the creator, Jesus. Now, if you're going to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, you need to understand John sixteen 14. I'm not going to put it up because I'm going to paraphrase it. It's in a section where Jesus is talking, promising that he's sending the Holy Spirit. And he says, when the, I send the Holy Spirit, here's what the Holy Spirit will do in you and for you. He says, the Spirit will glorify me. I'm sending the Spirit to glorify me. God has given you the Holy Spirit not to give you feelings, not to give you experiences, but to rivet your attention on the wonder and the beauty of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he has done for you on the cross. So that you celebrate all that you have in Christ, all that he has done for you. So to love one another, to love God, to walk by the Spirit means that you are are actively engaged in the greatest battle of your life the battle for your heart the battle for your desires lazy soldiers are dead soldiers that's why paul says in romans 8:13 but if by the spirit we put to death the misdeeds of the body originating in our sinful hearts We will live. Second, second thing Paul tells us here about walking in the Spirit is that you live in light of your union in Christ. This is verse 24. Notice how he begins. He begins by saying, You belong to Christ. Now we have labor unions, we have teacher unions, credit unions, pilot unions, pipe fitter unions. We have Unions for six-year-olds whose parents force them to eat broccoli. (laughs) Unions for teenagers whose parents won't buy them a brand new car. Now, why do we have unions? Because unions bring collective power and benefits. But hear, hear me, there is no greater... Power, no greater benefit, no greater transformation than the believer's union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. That is the union of all unions. Walking by the Spirit means you continually celebrate this union. Man, I belong to Christ. I've been given a righteousness and a forgiveness and eternal life, a hope, a peace and a joy that I couldn't have possibly earned or deserved on my own. Jesus did that for me. In addition, he's invited me into his palace and I will live there forever. I'm permanently a member of the royal family. I belong to Christ. Amen. I am totally and permanently loved to live in light of your union is to walk by the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is to live in light of your union. Third, walking by the Spirit in this context means you keep in step with the Spirit. This is verse 25. It's the last half of verse 25. Keeping in step with the Spirit means you don't veer off. And chase an idol or check out for a period of time or unplug from church or small groups or anything like that. You don't veer off. It means you don't lag behind. Uh, you don't um, flounder in disappointment. Oh, you know, God, I think somebody's gonna be okay, right? <laughs> you know, what do you do when you're up here speaking? You know, okay, do you stop and press pause and let everybody watch? (laughs) Or do you just keep going and everybody's watching anyways, you know? (laughs) Oh. Keeping in the step with the Spirit means you don't veer off and you don't lag behind because you've been rocked by disappointment. Our family... One of the things our family likes to do is to dance at wedding receptions. Now, not all of us are great dancers, but I I would say a fair number of us are, and I am by far and most pathetically the worst. (laughs) And I don't want you to even try to picture it. (laughs) I have no sense of rhythm, but over the years, and I've been to a fair amount of wedding receptions, I've noticed one thing that couples that are really good dancers all share this thing in common. And and it's this. One leads the dance, and he leads it so well, or she leads it so well. The other follows, and they do it so well. Keeping in step with the Spirit means you follow the Spirit. You let the Spirit lead the dance. You don't try to take control. You don't try to press. You watch what the Spirit is doing. Now, how do we do that? I'm going to conclude with this. Number one, you stay focused. You stay focused. We are totally dependent on the Spirit and totally responsible to walk by the Spirit. So as I said a minute ago, walking by the Spirit is a command. Keeping in step with the Spirit is a command. Every single one of these nine fruits of the Spirit are commanded elsewhere in the New Testament. This is the point of the language of battle. Lazy soldiers again are dead soldiers. Look, Jump over to chapter 6 and and look at verse 7. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man sows what he reaps. What you are laying down in your 20s and 30s, you will reap in your 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from their flesh will reap destu- destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. There's a second thing, and I want you to understand that verse 25, keeping in step with the Spirit means, and that means you stay humble. Now, how do I say that? Well, look at the very next, how the very next verse begins. Look at verse 26. Let us not become conceited. To keep in the step with the Spirit means you get over yourself and you become teachable, open. You are a lifelong spiritual learner. You love the Bible. You want to grow. You read books. You ask questions. You are humble. Let us not become conceited. And third, and finally, I'll conclude with this. You stay disciplined. Look at 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I have spent the last month on this verse. Thinking about it, throwing questions at it, trying to understand it. And I have been blown away by the potency of this verse. How are you and I transformed? We're transformed by contemplating the Lord's glory. The glory of creation, those sunrises and sunsets. The transfiguration glory, when we're told Jesus' face shined like the sun, and, and his robes and his clothes were as white as light. Where we meditate and we, we think about the glory of the cross, the glory of the resurrection, the glory of the ascension, the glory of our union in Christ, our connectivity to Jesus Christ, the glory of the new co- the coming of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. We contemplate. You think about the Lord's glory in the way you think about the things you're best at at work and you love outside of work. Man, I want you to know this transformation. But it doesn't just automatically happen. You have to stay disciplined. Do you contemplate the Lord's glory? Or do you just go with the flow? I've been asking this, my, myself this for a month now. You see, keeping in step with the Spirit isn't you conjuring up something. It isn't you trying to be a better person. It's you fixing your eyes on Jesus. Amen. When the Spirit comes, he will glorify Me. Me. And so that regardless of what happens to you, man, you know you're totally loved. You're permanently secure. And your future is heaven. So what is love? Love is Christ dying for you. We can understand that. The great obstacle to love is our refusal to deny ourselves. And the key to love is you and I walking by the Spirit, um, living out of a new playbook, staying connected to a new source of power, and dancing not with the world, but with the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to begin this series, to launch it, to look at these fruits. And we ask God... That you would, by your grace, make us more loving. That you would help us to see that it's not a love thing, it's a walking by the Spirit thing. Would you give us that mercy? Would you open our eyes? In Jesus' name, amen.